Welcome to Pure Nonfiction, the podcast interviewing documentary filmmakers. I'm Tom Powers, the artistic director of the Doc NYC Festival. I've been away from podcasting the past month as I get ready for Doc NYC. It's coming up November 9th to 16th in New York City. The full schedule is now online at docnyc.net. I hope you'll join us for over 250 films and panels. Now Pure Nonfiction returns to its weekly schedule. To introduce this episode, I need to cover three things. One, the filmmaker Agnes Varda. Two, the street artist known as J.R. And three, their new film collaboration, Faces, Places. First, Agnes Varda. Art is to surprise us. Art is surprising. So these little surprises, we need them. And we suppose that other people need them and enjoy them. At 89 years old, she has a career dating back to the 1950s. When the French New Wave took off, she directed a film called Cleo from 5 to 7 that follows a young woman wandering the streets of Paris, worried about a medical test. Varda was married to the filmmaker Jacques Demy, best known for the umbrellas of Cherbourg. They spent time in Los Angeles, where she made documentaries, one in 1968 called The Black Panthers. And another in 1980 about mural artists called Murmurs. Large paintings have a tendency, if done properly, to humble people. And much as a, a small child looks up into the eyes of his uh, parent. Both those films are available on Filmstruck. Another documentary that comes up in our conversation is called Daguerreotypes, that she made in Paris in the mid-1970s about local merchants on her street. Fast forward to 2000, when she released The Gleaners and I, an essay documentary about people who scavenge for food and art. That film awakened a new generation to her work. She followed with the autobiographical documentary The Beaches of Agnes. There was more to come. In her 80s, she created museum installations and directed a French TV series called From Here to There about her travels meeting artists. You can watch those later documentaries on Sundance Now. My second guest is J.R. At the age of 34, he's built a career taking photographs of people and blowing up their images into large-scale black-and-white murals. His projects include Women Are Heroes, Portraits of Women in Conflict Zones, that he made into a documentary in 2010. You may have read about his recent installation at the U.S.-Mexico border. On the Mexican side, he erected a giant billboard depicting a child's face and hands. The child appears like he's peeking over the border wall into the United States. It's political and playful. For me, that's the beauty of art. It crossed boundaries that you couldn't write on paper. You couldn't say, okay, that's allowed because it's art. No, it's only because of art that it would happen. And I've always walked and searched for those fine lines. Finally, let me introduce their film, Faces Places. This past May, I heard the Cannes Film Festival would be showing a new documentary by Varda in collaboration with J.R., whose work I didn't know. I imagined it would be a modest coda to her recent work. I wasn't prepared for how inventive, emotional, 
and deeply satisfying it would be. At Cannes, I was on the jury for the third annual GoldenEye Documentary Award. We attended the film's world premiere at the Grand Lumiere Theater, and its 2,400 seats were filled. As part of the ceremony, Varda and J.R. walked the famous Cannes red carpet lined with photographers. Inside the theater, we watched them on a live video feed. The lanky J.R. in his pork pie hat and sunglasses was a striking companion to the short Varda with her two-tone hair and colorful outfit. Usually the can red carpet is all about glamour and can feel fatuous, but this moment felt historic. Varda first came to the festival 55 years ago. Now with her eyesight fading, Faces Places could be her last film. The crowd in the Lumiere watched the video feed of Varda and J.R. climb the red carpet steps to the lobby doors. Then when they reach the theater entrance, as is customary, the director's name gets announced. Mesdames et messieurs, Agnès Varda. As the audience rose to its feet, my eyes were already welling up, and I don't think they dried until after the film was finished. At the end of the festival, our jury gave Faces Places the Golden Eye Prize. The film is a perfect blend of their talents. Varda and JR visit small towns in France and create mural projects that pay tribute to workers who are often overlooked on farms, on docks, and in factories. We also witness the deepening of a friendship between Varda and JR across their generations as they feed off each other's curiosity. C'est comme un jeu. Et en fait, j'ai répond à ce que je souhaite le plus. Varda says, JR is fulfilling my greatest desire to meet new faces and photograph them so they don't fall down the holes of my memory. The film's style is very much in keeping with Varda's other documentary essays. She employs any technique that might be useful, be it animation or restaging a conversation. In one sequence, JR pushes her in a wheelchair down the main hall of the Louvre Museum as they recreate a famous scene from Jean-Luc Godard's Band of Outsiders. Other moments are more spontaneous with observation and interviews. This fall, Faces Places won the Grolsch People's Choice Documentary Award at the Toronto International Film Festival and was selected for the Doc NYC shortlist. Faces Places was produced by Agnes's daughter, Rosalie Varda, who gets mentioned early in our conversation. I sat down with Agnes and JR the day after their film played at the New York Film Festival in October. I started by asking JR how they met. I have to say she have always been in my spectrum of, you know, uh, of an artist creating. But the time I really understood what she was doing was when I saw The Beaches of Agnes. And so it's, you know, uh, 2007, I think, and I saw it in theater and um, it really like touched me deeply. I was like, wow, I've never seen any documentary like that. And it pushed me to actually look into some of her past work and... But we never met. That's the crazy part. There's people that you're supposed to meet, that you would get along so well that you're never meeting. And some people have to force that. And maybe that's for a good reason, because when we met, 
we actually like jumped on that where if we had known each other we were like yeah I know him I know her you know but the fact that Rosalie and his daughter said okay guys you need to meet and I went to her studio I felt an excitement of like wow maybe it's the one and only time I'll meet her and the fact that she came back to my studio the next day uh, uh, was like wow extraordinary okay that's maybe the last time I see her so we kind of said ah, why don't we even meet tomorrow again for coffee we should do something and and it started like that on the idea of making something tiny something that we're not stressed about something that you know wouldn't uh, involve too much people that becomes a stress and we have to have deadline and stuff and that's how it started and then it became a film but I think that's one of the gift of this project for us is that we never had the weight of like we're making a film we're going to present it to the public we're going to be judged on it we were just having fun and letting ourselves taken by our own narrative our own curiosity our own uh, interrogations about each other also I agree thank you what you say <laughs> what I say is that for some reason the minute we met a kind of same Horizon, like what we like to do is related to people. And I've seen a lot of his photos, a lot of his murals, and I could see the importance he gave to other people's faces. Since I've been documentaries, make, made, I made some. And I know that I really am interested in these supposed unknown people who become known, known at least the face. We understood right away that we could we could join our two ways of dealing with people. Not that he had done interviews in Women Are Heroes, so he had done that, but he's doing big images. And I'm trying to do films in which people become real, that I remember I made a documentary in my street, and some people wrote to me and say, oh, the woman in the shop, I love her so much, I send you money, can you bring her flowers? So it's the connection between the people we film and the audience which makes a deal for me. The first fiction film that Varda made in the mid-1950s is called La Pointe Court, about a troubled marriage in a Mediterranean fishing village. She describes how that film encouraged her to take inspiration from real life. Well, I didn't know at the time any director. I didn't even see films so much, so I had no idea. What I knew is what I have crossed in my own life. I've been meeting fishermen many summers, one after another. And I was impressed about their stories, what they told about their life. On another side, I was impressed by literature and theater. So in my mind, I, I figure a film in which my two directions, intellectual dialogue and documentary approach, were, would be together. Since we are all, as I, I am myself, double, double aspiration, double. So I really like to be inspired by real people. Mm -hmm. And it started, this is 54, 53, 54. And I kept that concept. So even if I did fiction film, I went back to documentary. I spoke about daguerreotype, daguerreotypes. This is 75, you know. Right. And then in 79 or 80, I made a documentary about murals in Los Angeles. That's well, I got very interested in people who want to do things on the wall for the people in the street. So normally, 
I was interested in what JR does. I mean, but I was not born yet. <laughs> no, I'm not speaking in the 80s, but later I'm saying the subject about expressing on the walls in the street and for free always interested me. So you are not the only one now. Now there is a legend, I mean, quantity of people doing on the wall. But you did some books that I noticed. And I noticed that he was interested in old people. Hmm. It impressed me. Old walls, you know, totally shrink walls, and and old people. You you did incredible face of old people in Havana, in Shanghai. So what attracted you so much to old people that I love them myself because they have a lot of things on their face. It's like the whole life is printed, you know, what you call wrinkles, what you call whatever. Character. Yeah, spots of age. And I think I'm interested in that, including in my own life. So it naturally thought that we could work together. So, JR, let me ask you, what did you uh, learn by working with Agnes? Every day I pinch myself trying to think how many things I'm learning and am I learning enough and am I realizing the chance I have? You know, I do realize the chance as I'm doing it, but when you're in the middle of the storm, you actually not fully um, uh, integrating as much as if you had two hours with someone and you like try to, but at the same time, I'm like, yeah, I'm think she's already having an impact on my, on me, on my work because she, you know, her advice on the daily basis then suddenly become like uh, a new codes, you know, uh, or remind me of codes that um, I should stand by, I should, you know, look for, And so one of them being curiosity, staying always curious, always, always re-questioning. And my generation is more like fast, let's do this, let's do that, you know. And she's always like, let's sit, read and talk about it and then do, you know, and it's a whole different approach. So I don't know if I'll manage to, you know, be uh, like uh, that, you know, see things uh, uh, exactly her way, but I'm definitely taking Um, you know, a lot of her amazing sides, there's too many, uh, that inspired me in my work and that would have an impact. And I think that film um, and the whole process that you can actually see in the film, you know, because we really got to know each other throughout the, the, the making of it, will definitely have an impact on what I'm doing in, for the rest of my life. So, I wanted to ask you about those scenes where you are talking together because... They can they can seem a little bit staged in the film, although yes, you're totally right, delightful. That's true. We could not have a cameraman when we spent hours, you know, discussing on the kitchen table, eating sometimes cookies. Most of the time. Most of the time. Of a real meal. So we had to stage it. And you're right. We had to say, okay, we will have one scene in the kitchen, one you say, we will do a film together. And I would say, say, where, where do we go? But you are right, because if it had to be a documentary, we could have had a camera staying in the kitchen 24 hours, and we would have kept that moment, which we couldn't do. And you're right. And two people told me that. They say, you know, this is stage. Yes, this is stage. We wanted to start the film with question answer. But, but it's staged in Anya's style way, you know, new wave that I couldn't have uh, do that myself. She showed me how to do it that people notice that it's staged, but at the same time it's done with, uh, you know, uh, a lightness to it and, 
Uh, and the real place where we all and the real place and the real the things real, we said but it's and the also real kitchen. we're not actors so you can tell but we're not trying to make it like it's fake we really you know the camera is on a tripod it's like fixed frames it's going from like it's and a little cut out on the and the cat behind me and the cat and like every day so it's uh, there's a playfulness to it yeah. that invites the audience to join along i i, I feel definitely Agnes, in the film, you say that uh, chance has always been your best assistant. Um, and we see a lot of beautiful moments like that uh, in the film. But I, I feel like it's probably chance combined with planning. I mean, there's something that's very intentional about the places that you've chosen to go to. And I, I wonder if you can talk about that balance between what you plan and what you allow to happen spontaneously. The answer is in the question, because... We planned to go, let's say, to the north, and we knew there were these streets where Minor had used to live, but they're being to be destroyed, and some people were still. So we knew about the fact. So we went there. This is planned. We, we have a little cool first. It's a sequence early in the film. They travel to an old miner's town where the brick row houses are mostly abandoned. They meet an older woman named Janine, whose father was a miner. On y a rencontré Janine, qui est la dernière habitante de la rue. So that's the thing. We knock at the door and we bump into Janine. So chance, chance, luck, whatever, gave us Janine. But you know, just saying, we could have been knocking at maybe another street, another door. That she was a gift, you know. She was a real beautiful encounter. She played the game. She she got into the project. We told her the project. And she agreed and she did it in good good mood, good natural and everybody likes her, you know, all the audiences like that woman. JR photographs Janine's face and reproduces it as a large image pasted to the front of her row house. When the face is there on the wall and the woman comes out of her own house that we see her coming out of her own portrait, the images that touch me, but then she discovers herself. And you see there is a big emotion in the room, in the audience. When we see that she's touched, she's shocked or maybe in joy or pain, we don't know, and she has like some tears coming to her. And I, what I love is, I said it already, that a normal journalist, you know, would say nothing. And he said, I gave him, comment dit un petit câlin? A hug. Yeah. He gave her a hug, like, as we were friends or family. So we had a relationship which was not exactly filmmakers to one model, but something that, that grew between us. And we kept in good relationship. She has been happy about the film that has been presented in her village. And she said, it changed my life. It gave me light. But she has been pushed out. Oh, she's no longer in that home? Yeah. Well, oh. She had to go. But she say she spent an incredible time that gave her like a real moment of of that house. So it, yeah. we don't know if it's good or bad, but you know, a lot of um a lot of uh, uh the way the way we approach our life is uh, in the most safety way as possible, knowing, you know, where we're going, making sure we you know, when we get there someone is here. Um making sure everything is is set and the way i'm sure uh, 
we do films today is also, okay, we're moving a crew, so let's be sure at this time we have that person at that time. We actually moved all this not knowing how, how they would look like. We knew in which village we would end up, but we kind of accepted that maybe no one would answer the door. Maybe, you know, uh, we would get nothing. We were um, letting completely chance direct our film, but we knew how, when to grab it. Jer, you talk about your work being ephemeral when you're putting it up on the side of a building. Uh, partly I have a practical question. How long does something last uh, when, you, when you paste it up on a building? Um, you know, the beauty is that it depends on the weather, of the wind, of the context, of the people. And um, it can go, you know, the, in the film you see that one of them, one of the biggest one in the film is actually only staying, you know, not even a night. Because um, it's by the ocean. The ocean washes, takes it yeah. away, it washes it. But in some other places, it's still up today. And I have pacing that are up for more than 10 years and some that are disappearing under layers of paint. And, and I kind of, you know, since the, my early beginnings, I've always documented, uh, even with like just, uh, you know, a small photos or something, because I knew of that ephemerality. And, um, uh, but I love not knowing. I actually also... The fact that I don't sign my artworks and there's nothing written on it, I would love to be in, you know, in the mind of the person who's just walking by and have no idea of who did it and who's the person, but that actually read the image with his own narrative, with his own story, and because we all read an image depending on, you know, where we come from and what's our own life story, and so that's what I'm actually the most curious of is how people. And what's you know what what's their storytelling uh and often it's obvious when you see that little kid at the border between mexico and u.s but often it's you know it's just a face and you have to find the rest of the story and i always make it available for the people who want to find it but i'm not making it that obviously available that it looks like a campaign what well, you know some of your work like the recent piece at the at the border of mexico of uh of the face of a child looking over uh the border wall is set against a kind of obvious political backdrop or the work that you've done along the wall in Israel and Palestine uh, and you know, feels like it's an obvious political context. And sometimes some of the works in this film have maybe a little bit more subtle a political context when you're working with dock workers or, um, or farmers uh, that represent a changing way of, uh, of how farming happens. Um, and I wonder for both of you. But that's observation. Yeah. That's trying to discover what maybe we didn't know and maybe the audience didn't know about, about the way they work in the farm and the way goats have no longer co But we made a point never to ask the people what kind of political they were voting for. We never asked the political question. It, it was the, the, the principle of that film. Just meet the people person to person. So it doesn't have a political meaning like it could be the Mexican border or the Palestine. But it has like a, what we thought, a subtle sociological observation of the people in France today, what they do, what they think of, and not making it a point that maybe we could have done the same six years before or three years before when the political was different. There is so much happening every six months, it changes. And we kept our meetings like out of the 
political reality or whatever is happening, those horrible news that we, you know, you open the TV, it's just disaster. Death, attentat, je sais pas comment on dit attentat. Uh, attacks and bombings. Yes. You know, and accident and people drown and storms and hurricanes. So we thought, let's just, just not work on that. A lot of people do that and they do very serious documentaries that we appreciate. Let's get out of it to say, can we make a link of empathy, understanding, sharing, just peaceful interviews and meetings, even if the subject is not that funny. Well, you know, when they work, these workers, they work in a chemical factories, it's no fun. It's slightly dangerous. It's difficult work. And we come and we make a little fancy week with them. And in a way, they like it. And they agree to do a collective portrait. And the way Jay staged it was very nice. He said, put your arms like this, put your... I thought they would be mad. And they, they play with it. And then we could have two groups and they seem that they want to join Always the idea of link, of empathy, of understanding. And you know, I love the worker who comes and sees the mural and say, C'est surprenant. <laughs> Les l'art, c'est pour surprendre aussi, les gens, non? C'est vrai. Oh, art is to surprise us. Art is surprising. So these little surprises, we need them. And we suppose that other people need them and enjoy them. Mm-hmm. I wonder uh, what you think it means to have done this project in France, uh, the quality of reactions you got and the interactions you got, what it says about uh, about French people. You know, it's. I often see uh, my work, and I'm sure Agnès' work, actually, when you look at it, that's what we have in common, a sociological approach and research. Uh, in Agnès' works, it's pretty obvious. You, you look daguerreotype, and you understand how a street in Paris was, you know, in the 60s or 70s and how the shopkeeper would interact. And um, that's how it's genius the way she's done it at the time because she's just documented purely and uh, very simply. But today, when you look at it, it's a document that have no value. It's like, you're like, wow, you know, how many documentaries like that can I see? And you realize there's not many. Um, and in my case, the excuse is the image, the paste up, but the, the actual process of how easy or not it was possible to make, how the people react to it, how long did it stay, you know, uh, what did the people think about it? Um, all of these elements are the sociological experiment where, which I'm learning the most from. For me, the art is the process, not the final piece. And, um, and, you know, of course, I'm fighting against uh, my own, um, when I put up a big image, you know, the image is going to go faster than, than anything because of today's, uh, you know, social media, Instagram, like people just post it. And so I have to fight against that by you know, uh, making books, documentaries, um, uh, trying to document actually what is for me the most interesting, trying to make sure that people actually come and sit with their own eyes because that's what I'm trying the most is that to bring people and sit with their own eyes. When I've done the kid at the border, right away I put the location point and say, please come and sit by yourself. 
And the truth is often people are like, oh, cool, wow, there's a big piece we can go and see. Let's go and take a photo of ourselves in front of it, which is always how it starts. But now when they get there and they see that someone's on the other side of the fence taking a photo of himself also in front of the piece, they realize, wait, this guy can only see it from that perspective. I can only see it from here. And they often they exchange their phone through the fence to be like, hey, do you mind taking a photo of me from your side? And, and that's, uh, I've heard it on NPR, journalists went there and said ah, there was like 50 people and there was so much phone exchange. And I'm sure the Border Patrol are looking from way back there, but they're letting it happen because they're like, okay, they came for art. I guess if it's art, it's, it's, it's okay. They cannot say it's okay. But the fact that they haven't arrested anybody passing phones through the fence, you know, for me, that's the beauty of art. It crossed boundaries that you couldn't write on paper. You couldn't say, okay, that's allowed because it's art. No, it's only because of art that it would happen. And I've always walked and searched for those fine lines. And I'm always impressed by how further they are from which I think they are. That's a beautiful project, you know, and it's, it has a big impact because it makes sense. And again, it's is as as if art, uh, with this quote, art allows us to do things that are more than art, uh, really impact on societies. And images are never innocent. Even the mailman, the huge mailman, by the way, is is still there, but he lost his feet. Okay. <laughs> because when they cleaned the street, that they sent wood or whatever. So now he has his top to the knees, and then he has no feet. But his face is still there. Uh, you know, images, and when they stay for a while, what Jay just said is that the way people look at these images, and it's like, rebondir, come on, bumping again, image to thought, thought to images. It's not totally innocent. It's sort of joy. It's a show. But it makes people think, discuss about the representation of themselves. And life has changed so much since the camera became cheap, then cheaper, then that was photo on the telephone, and then the selfie business. So now images are all going. It's like a, comment dire, un feu d'artifice. Fireworks. A firework of <laughs> images all over the world. People send to, you know, they send images. And then we try to do something very specific, big and different. And then they have to look at that differently than, than to look at the selfie. You know, that makes me want to ask what you think about <clears throat> this proliferation of images, because you started out as a photographer using a big bellows camera or, or a Roloflex, and every image was very... It's democracy. That's what happens. I remember going in museums. They were half empty. Empty, maybe. I remember the Louvre. I was studying art, and I would go to the Louvre. Empty. And now the, all the museums are open to everybody, and they are full of people, whatever it does of them. But it's what democracy brings, the right to go to museum, the right to make pictures, the right to, to send mails. And So what do I think? It's what's happening. I'm with it. Even aging, I cannot escape what's happening. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of a democratic process, I know that you... Uh, crowdfunded uh, a certain amount of this film and the the opening credits of the film have this kind of beautiful tribute to all these names of people uh, who were... Con- you know, they said, they sent 10 euros, 20 euros, some. 
small, then 50, and then somebody sent 8,000, you know. We, we built like this the first expense, but they were, it's the game. They would receive something, a postcard, a photo, something bigger. And we thought, if, why, if we ask them to give more, do they want that project to exist? I was very surprised that it worked. Yeah, and, and we never done that, none of us. Yeah. And, well, I'm uh, curious about it because in I think in the United States it's become much more common yeah. in the last five years. But as I understand it, in France it's it's, it's a lot. And yeah. we were criticized, like these people they have everything. How did they have to ask? And I think if somebody wants me and Jer to make a film and they wish to see it, why? I mean, when they're not obliged, they can send. Yeah. 20 euro or lose it. <laughs> and we're it. sending something back too. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, and if they lose it, they lose it. So yeah. <laughs> I was impressed that there were bad reaction in the press, by the way. <laughs> that, that's strange to me, but I guess it's a different yeah, context. Yeah, in France it's a different culture, but the people at the end proved that, uh, uh, you know, uh, they made that film possible because the, when we did that fundraising was only f- to do a short little film and people were excited about that they had no idea it would become a film and then it would you know have all these incredible travels after none of us had it and yet people were like okay sure you guys want to do a little like 10 minute film 15 minutes just do it and uh, we send them postal cards poster original print and, uh, and you, they're you also noticed, happy. We noticed the name. And the, yeah. We gave them credit at the beginning before everything. <laughs> yeah. 420, know, I think. There's a woman. No, no, 600-something, uh, 50 or 76. There's a woman that, imagine, she's American. She puts some money in, in the crowdfunding. Then by accident, she's in uh, France, in holiday, in South of France. On the first day we're shooting in Bonneux, where we put the mailman. So she's like, oh my God, I did give you some money. And I was like, what? Yes, I'm just traveling here. But I actually gave to the crowdfunding thing um, because it was a French one. I don't even know how she found it. Maybe it's through my Instagram or whatever. And she said, oh, and I'm here on the set with you today. Anyway, cut. Last night, she was there at the premiere. Oh, wonderful. And she came. She spoke to you? Yeah, and said, remember, I met you in Bonneau uh, at the one. And I was like, oh, my God, of course. Did she see her name? Yeah, she <laughs> saw her. She's like, she loved the movie. It was the first time she saw it. And she was there at the New York Film Festival. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that story. I'm glad we met today. Agnes, I want to ask you about the editing process uh, f- for these films. Because as JR was saying before, you have a real unique voice in film in this and Beaches of Agnes and the Gleaners and I, it's, it's almost your own kind of form of, uh, of essay. And, and I wonder how you put it together when you're in the edit room. I, I, I know that there are beautiful documentaries with no narration, no voice, I would say like Wiseman or others. It's a, it's a point of view very interesting to leave it as it is. And in all my documentaries, Daguerreotype or the Gleaners, I take all the voices, people, what they say, and I get the best of it. I'm editing what they have said, with off and in and on. I mean, again, the idea to put them in the best light, the best value possible. So we did the same for this film, because we had spent a lot of time with, with Janine, with others. So by choosing in what they said, question, answer, 
I, I wanted them to be the best possible position, the best possible representation, because it is representation. You know, it's never the truth. The truth would be, okay, you leave the camera there and you leave it for 24 hours. So it's building documentaries. And I really love the editing because that's, I call it the cine writing. So I like the editing because it, it summarized all the choices we have made to shoot with big camera or small, black and white or color, you know, on the road or traveling shots or still. And then what we did, what we chose, then the music that has been chosen. A friend of Jer and a friend of mine, M. Shedid, I don't know if it's so known here, Mathieu Shedid. The music is terrific. I, I wasn't aware of his music before, but... Uh... M is famous as M. And that came together that what we should not illustrate the film, but go with it. Sometimes there is a lot of nostalgia because the film speak about today, but there's nostalgia about the old times of mining and also because the time passes, because my friend Bourdin died, because the images are ephemeral. In the same time, we want to show energy. So it's the double, for me, the double movement is energetic and giving energy, getting the energy of the people, and also having the little background sort of nostalgic voice. That's what I feel. Agnes, in the film, uh, you talk about your eyesight uh, having troubles, and, uh, and I wonder you know, how it is today. Uh, how are your eyes today? You are vaguely out of focus, but I see you. Well, you know, the, the, what the technicals say, like, I have one and a half out of 10%, one and a half out of 10, come on, D. So it's very little. But the numbers, I'm not so interested in what the number says. Mm-hmm. I see. Well, I don't see well, but I see, I enjoy seeing. And sometimes, even with glasses, I cannot really read. But everything is okay. Sometimes colors are vaguely different, and sometimes it moves a little like this. But I just forget about the trouble, I must say. I enjoy seeing. And with four eyes, you know, no, for the film, I knew he would see better than me anyway. <laughs> Even through his dark glasses. Uh, that's his, his coquetterie. Is that you call that way? <laughs> um, so uh, maybe for my last question, I want to ask about that, the premiere at the Cannes Film Festival. Agnes, you've been going to Cannes Film Festivals for some 55 years since your uh, film uh, Cleo from 5 to 7 played there in, in the early 1960s. And for me, sitting in the theater and you know watching the two of you walk up the red carpet uh, felt like it had... You were at the screening? I was at the that screening. The screening? I have, oh I have a God. terrific uh, photo of it, uh, or uh-huh. I have a oh video of it of when you walked what in. What a screening. I would yeah. want to see it. Yeah. Because... I mean, it was an incredible emotion. And you could see the audience, and Wiki, you saw us. I was impressed, and I've been impressed many times in Cannes, you know, many times. I remember being with Jacques Demy for the Breath of Cherbourg. I remember being showing Jaco. You know, we have memories of Cannes, but this is our film. This is today, and we share that incredible emotion, I would say. We share something very interesting, because most of the time, we don't stay when the film is on, but we say, can the big room. So we stayed, and I could feel the audience, you know, slowing down, excited, smiling, 
we could feel like like feeling a body, you know, the body of the audience. We could feel it, right? And it was, and they laugh, and we could see that maybe at that point they were touched. I felt it very strange way. So at the end, when there were so so many applause and excitement, you know, the standing ovation. I felt almost ashamed, like I couldn't believe it. I had to feel, oh, it's too much, too much. It killed me, maybe. <laughs> <You know. laughs> well, I was sitting next to Sandrine Bonaire, and I felt like I was part of French film history uh, in that moment. And so because you were part of that jury. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so I, I had Sandrine on one side and Lucy Walker uh, on the other side. Didn't? I knew nothing about that. I didn't know even that there was a jury of... The, we have been out of competition. That was our deal. So it came as a surprise. But it was an incredible screening. You agree? Oh, very much. One of endless. the most memorable of my felt, life. And I really felt at some point, you know, like, like a stupid thought. I said, it would be beautiful to die like this. At that time, all oh, this incredible applaud. End of it. I really thought it for one second. It would be the best ever death I could imagine. But I didn't die. I want to thank Agnes Varda and JR for speaking with me. Their film Faces Places is now playing in theaters. Varda will be at Doc NYC on November 14th for a screening of the film. For more information, go to docnyc.net. You can find much of Varda's past work on the digital platforms Sundance Now and Filmstruck. Thanks to our team, series producer Sarah Modo, sound mixer, Tom Micah, web designer, Cross Strategy, and social media master, Jordan Smith. Our theme music is composed by Andre Williams, and our executive producer is Rafaela Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at T-H-O-M Powers. Pure Nonfiction is distributed by the TIFF Podcast Network. You can read our show notes, learn about live events, and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net.